You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee at Acumen Law, and with me from a distance is Paul Doroshenko. Hi, Kyla. Sorry that you've got COVID again. Yeah, I've got COVID again. If you can't hear it, you will hear it because at some point during this podcast, I will start coughing and it's a horrible sound. I'm sorry to hear it. I know I feel so bad for you. Um, it yeah. appears that I am uh, likely immune because uh, I had lunch with you on Monday and you were COVID positive Monday. And I didn't I was, know I was COVID positive, just to be clear, when we had lunch and I was asymptomatic. I got a headache and a sore throat that night and I tested that night. Well, usually though, you've got it for a couple of days before you test and you are well, I know, but I don't want people give it away to somebody I don't else. Want, I don't want people thinking I'm going around, running around with COVID, having lunch and going to court and well, things like not. that. Of course not. Anyway, so the uh, you were a little ornery though on Monday. So maybe that's another symptom of COVID. I was hungry on Monday and you wouldn't feed me. I took you for lunch. It was your 10-year like lawyer anniversary and I took you for lunch. At 3 p.m. 2 p.m. <laughs> anyway, it was a nice lunch. It was 2 p.m. because I know I had a 3.30 appointment, so we had to get out of there. We were 45 minutes there having lunch. I just can't believe I didn't get COVID from you, apparently. I don't know. I mean, I'm in isolation. I'm going to test myself again tomorrow. If I'm, if I'm still clear, then I can head out of isolation, I guess. Been worried about giving it to everybody else in the office. Yes. However, it's gone through our office now three or four times. We've had people in the office with COVID. Um, we've got another person home with COVID right now. And one person who's working remotely who hasn't been in the office working in another town and they've got COVID. Yeah. It's miserable. And everyone in the dog has COVID. Now monkeypox. Hmm? That's next is monkeypox. I do not want the monkeypox. I've had enough. Yeah, I'm sure you have. Anyway, anyway so, I'm also going to apologize to our listeners because thanks to COVID, my brain is a puddle. And so I'm not as smart as normal. So you're unfortunately going to have to listen to more Paul. And I don't know if that's as smart, but it's got to be at least as entertaining. Well, I think we should start off, though, talking about uh, your case that was uh, published and made the news this week because the uh, Big win. And you're the one who can smartly describe that. Uh, yeah. because it's uh, it's important. We should do it while you're still functioning. Yeah, so this was a judicial review of an immediate roadside prohibition. And actually, judgment was released last week, the same day we recorded the podcast. Um, and it was a case involving a an individual who had said effectively that um, shortly before he was stopped by the officer, he rinsed his mouth out with mouthwash in the parking lot of a liquor store. It was like eight o'clock in the morning, spits it out of the parking lot, and then uh, goes to drive his car across the street to another 
store in a complex across the street and he's pulled over by the police officer um a sobriety check ensues and he blows fails into roadside breathalyzers so a couple things that were interesting about his case the first was that in his case um there was a certificate for the calibration records for the breathalyzer and the certificate was not signed by the officer and uh, that should be a fatal flaw should be i agree and i think it should be done right then i agree um the adjudicator determined ultimately that the asd was um properly calibrated because there was no legal requirement for a signed certificate um and the court found that it wasn't really about a legal requirement, but the adjudicator's determination of the weight to be given the unsigned certificate and said that the the weighing of evidence is within purview of the administrative decision maker, that uh, um, it was um, uh, it was within the statutory role of the adjudicator and her expertise to determine whether the expert report that said that they needed to be signed was deserving of more or less weight than the certificate. Um, and uh, ultimately the court found that the unsigned certificate was sufficiently reliable, uh, or sorry, the adjudicator found that the unsigned certificate was sufficiently reliable and the court didn't interfere with that. But I think it's important to note about this aspect of the decision, Paul, is that it does not endorse the practice of relying on the unsigned certificate. It merely endorses the fact-specific chain of analysis by which the adjudicator preferred the certificate in that case over expert evidence that was submitted in that case. And it doesn't foreclose the possibility that other evidence could be submitted in the future, which would support that the certificate does need to be signed or that it's necessary to have a signed certificate in order to confirm the prohibition. My problem with the unsigned certificate is thinking of the process and the steps. You're a um, uh, qualified ASD calibrator, and you fill out all those steps on your computer screen, and then you do them as you're doing it, right? Mm -hmm. And if you clicked all those boxes, the next thing is for it to print. But -hmm. if you click all those boxes and you discover there's a problem with the device, you've Mm -hmm. just tested the calibration, and you found Mm -hmm. out that you know, it's not powering up correctly or the display is not displaying correctly or it's shutting itself down quickly or something like that, you don't sign it. You look at it and say, you know what? <laughs> put that ASD over there. Print out the certificate might be printed out sitting right underneath it. Put it over there. Somebody else could come along and print it out too. Doesn't mean that it's been properly calibrated. And that is my particular concern with this because they a certificate is a is a um, method of getting around providing evidence, normally viva voce evidence, but evidence it's a it's a shortcut, but it's mm-hmm. a shortcut that's supposed to be answered on all corners of it, and the cases that were referred to were circumstances where there was also um, viva voce evidence going in that could explain it or discuss it. And this does not answer all the questions on the four corners of the certificate when it is unsigned. And in a system that is a paper-only system, 
where the expectation is everything is going to be put in properly and the certificate is created for the specific use for the specific system with the specific last step to be signed and it isn't to me that is a fatal flaw because so many there can be so many reasons why it wasn't signed and so many of them to my mind are i would not commit my hand my pen to paper here fair enough so i think it's wrong in the context of this scheme but that's not how you succeeded you succeeded for no. other reasons yes because there is another um issue and that was the adjudicator's reliance on the mouthwash well the lack of reliance on the mouthwash evidence there were sort of stark contrasts between the officer's version of events and the applicants and the adjudicator <laughs> rejected <coughs> <coughs> the adjudicator rejected the applicant's evidence for essentially five specific <coughs> specific reasons in the case. The first was she said that she found, and you'll recognize this language if you listen to our podcast recently, she found the applicant's version of events to be questionable. Uh, I'm doing air quotes. In part because he did not provide an explanation why <laughs> moved his car in the parking lot in the liquor yeah. store parking lot? Yeah, and <laughs> and the court referred to um, the Rangi case where Justice Schulte said it's not a sound approach to base disbelief of a driver's evidence on factors that do not logically undermine their position, even if they're accepted. Then she said, <clears throat> "I don't believe you," because the applicant said, "I knew this officer, and he'd recently become an RCMP member." but the officer was a corporal. And she said, I don't think it's likely that he would recently have become a member of the RCMP um, because it takes, a corporal. It it takes time, time to become a corporal. And I can rely on my special knowledge of the RCMP to tell you that. You have no and, idea if the person was formerly in the military police who or knows? was formerly in the Vancouver police and held a high rank and got a job with the RCMP as a corporal. You can't know. No, you can't know. Also, you know, you have to disclose that you're going to rely on your specialized knowledge, one would think. Yep. And so that breached procedural fairness. Uh, then she misapprehended his evidence about using the mouthwash. Because she said, well, you, you provided a photo of the mouthwash bottle. And you provided a photo of, of ingredients, but I can't read those ingredients. But he also provided evidence printed from the Listerine website that listed the ingredients and the adjudicator just like pretended that that didn't exist. And it showed that alcohol was an ingredient in the mouthwash. The, the um, first ingredient listed, <laughs> the first yeah. active ingredient listed. Inactive, inactive. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> Sorry, inactive. Yeah. And then uh, she also dealt with his evidence where he said he told the officer that he'd use mouthwash. And she said, well, I don't believe that because if you told the officer that you used mouthwash, then the officer would have written that in his narrative and he would have waited to do your test. And this is a huge one. This yeah. is a huge one because there's so often that you'll find something in a police report at where you could maybe guess that maybe that something happened there. You can see the hint of it. Mm -hmm. There was one I did recently where um, 
you get further on at the end of the police report and it refers to him doing this again, which is something he did at the beginning, telling the police officer about a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was only because it was repeated, it was omitted at the beginning, repeated at the end, that you could say that you don't have to you know, worry about the tribunal taking this position, that it would have been there. The officer would have recorded that. Well, half the time, the, the reports you get are cut and paste. Well, of course, they're not going to report it. They also don't report anything, usually, that undermines their their version of the file. So, mm-hmm. of course, it's not going to be there. But the adjudicator assumes that the officer would have written it down if the person had said that. Not a chance. And, of course, you don't get to cross-examine them, so you can't. You never know. Nope. Then the fifth thing, the last thing was this, and listeners, keen listeners will recognize this language. The adjudicator made unreasonable credibility findings based on common sense, in quotations, inferences, and speculative assumptions that were not based in evidence regarding bad breath and the use of mouthwash more generally. Specifically, she had said, well, you, I don't believe that your bad breath would have just been noticeable to you when you put your mask on to go into the liquor store. So I don't believe that you that you used mouthwash when you left the liquor store. I'm summarizing this in uh, hearings now and saying that that uh, you can't say that something's a common sense inference when it's just a speculative assumption. Yep. Because um, really, that's the that's the essence of it. There. Yep. Don't make speculative assumptions. If it's a common sense inference, just because you call it common sense, it's not. It's it, yeah. If it's a speculative assumption, rather, just because yeah. you call it common sense doesn't mean it's common sense. Yeah. And the court said that the, that last point was the most problematic of the adjudicator's reasoning, saying, well, I find it was open to the adjudicator to reject the various aspects of Mr. Chohan's version of events on the evidence before her. Her reasoning process for coming to that rejection must be free from manifest flaws in reasoning on a material point and grounded in the evidence rather than speculation. And so I'm thinking, looking at this case and the Flores decision, and then thinking of this CRT decision that we talked about, people were commenting about me laughing about the robust review. Mm-hmm. And looking at these two, Flores and Chohan, and I think maybe there's a this is a declaration that there's going to be a more robust review, and I'm sort of optimistic, I guess, uh, because it's not something we've seen up till now. But we've got these two decisions coming out in a fairly short period of time. And, and the, your your decision in Chohan here uh, affirms the decision in Flores. I don't know who argued Flores. Was that you? That was me. Yeah. Um, affirms the uh, comments in Flores with respect to the uh, dealing, weighing with weighing the evidence. Yep. So um, that uh, we could be seeing, bearing in mind we're facing the tribunalization of our justice system, our courts might be saying that they're not going to put up with this type of reasoning that we see in all of these decisions from the superintendent's office. That would be nice. What um, I wanted to ask you about next is a decision you found. Oh, oh yeah. Well, this is interesting because this goes back to reasoning as well. And so we deal with a problem with the IRP scheme, and that is that there's a presumption that police officers are doing their job and doing it right, and there's a presumption that they're honest, and they get a um, 
uh, baseline of credibility given to them by the tribunal. The court says they're not supposed to, and they'll often say in the decisions that I didn't do it. But if you read the decision carefully, you can see that the police officers get a baseline of credibility. So there's an assumption that police officers are telling the truth. Um, and charter rights are kind of loose when it comes to immediate roadside prohibitions. They don't lead to remedies unless it's a refusal case, for example. Um, but this case that I was just reading uh, today, it was released on May 5th, Karl Marx's birthday. It's an Ontario Court of Justice case, Regina and Foreman. Um, gives you an indication of just how badly sort of the police can screw up credibility and that you just can't take police at their word. So in this case, Mr. Foreman um, drove his car into the side of an industrial building. Uh, there had apparently been a call in, somebody making a complaint about him. Mm -hmm. um, and um, But that wasn't uh, information that the main investigating officer had when she attended the scene. Some people had, had got there, including uh, uh, EHS uh, individuals and at sort of pulled him out of his car. Um, and there was a couple of issues that uh, that came to light as things played out. One was uh, whether or not the police officer had reasonable and probable grounds. And that was accepted that she did. Um, in the end, uh, he, there's an acquittal on the impaired. But uh, Mr. Foreman was basically living in his car. And it looked like he was one of these people. And it was filled with empty bottles. Uh, it smelled of feces and you name it. Uh, it was disgusting. Um, and when they approached him, he was basically, uh, he was, he was out of uh, unconscious, um, and they opened the car door and got him out. And ultimately the police officer comes, um, and, um, she arrests him, she arrests him, but she doesn't, uh, after giving him his 10 a rights, she doesn't go to his 10 B rights right away. She, there's a delay. Mm-hmm. And there's a discussion about the delay, but the problem that we've got here is what really where it falls apart is she tries to claim there's no delay and hide it. Um, and there's a couple of things where she gets caught, just like really caught. There's one aspect uh, she says, claims, although she's got nowhere in her notes, that she detects an odor of liquor from him there at the roadside. But then uh, in her notes later on, she said she recorded, now I record, now I can detect an odor of liquor. Or now I can smell alcohol, and this is this is well after um, she's uh, got him back at the detachment. Um, she says that she sees a bottle of rum in the center console, but she's got no note to it, and so the judge basically just rejects it. And this is sort of the direction that we see when it comes to notes. Oh yeah, take good notes. Uh, yep. But what she records is uh, in her notebook is she. Uh, this is well after, this is after at the detachment when he's providing the sample. She wrote that she could, and this is in quotes, now smell alcohol over the odor coming from the car. Um, strange comment. Didn't make sense. Um, but uh, this is a report later on in her notes. And she mm -hmm. says that she could... Uh, she claimed that she could smell an odor at the car, but this was later on in her notes. So this was a problem. But the biggest problem was the eight minutes to the notification of 10B. So why would she delay eight minutes? Well, you know, it was put to her. What do you mean? What do you think you have to do when you detain somebody? How long do you think you have until you have to give them their right to notification of their right to counsel? <laughs> and she thought it was as soon as practicable. Hey, we had that. Yeah. 
Yeah. Remember but that of trial? course it's not. What's that? Asked, remember that trial that I asked the officer? I was like, is there any circumstance that you're aware of in which you would be required to read the right to counsel before an ASD test? And she thought long and she thought hard and she came back with no. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, ultimately, in the end, the big problem was that she claimed that um, she claimed when she was testifying that she arrested the individual, so she can't aid him. And then the individual was dealt with by EHS or EMS, emergency medical uh, services. And then nine minutes later, she can beat him. But it was fairly clear because she had written various times that once the accused was assessed by EMS, that she then did the arrest. So she was caught in a lie on the basis lie. of her own notes yep. and on the basis of, of, uh, of uh, the, the narrative. And it says here, when pressed further on the issue by defense counsel, she ultimately acknowledged that her testimonial evidence about the timing of the EMS treatment relative to the 919 arrest contradicted the sequence contained in her notes and her synopsis and the CAD details, so the uh, dispatch details. But she stubbornly resisted acknowledging the patently obvious contradiction between her type notes, synopsis, and her testimony. And the process of explanations amounted to, to only non-explanations and non-sequiturs. When she finally acknowledged the contradiction, she had no answer for it. I found the constable's testimony on this subject to both to lack both credibility and reliability. In saying this, I do not mean to suggest uh, that I have concluded that the constable deliberately contrived an explanation for her delay in reading Mr. Foreman and rights, though I am mindful that she knew she would need to explain the nine minute delay when she came to court. Sometimes desire can bring belief to life. I am able to determine though that when presented with cogent evidence of her contemporaneous recording on the sequence of events, the constable was very reluctant to honestly acknowledge what constituted blatant and undeniable prior inconsistent statements. And so as I was reading this, I was thinking to myself, what's worse, being caught making a mistake and acknowledging it or refusing to concede a mistake? And one of the things that we see regularly when we cross-examine police officers is this unwillingness to concede the mistake. Mm -hmm. And there's a real lesson here in this case, because this is a 21-year officer who has the wrong understanding of 10B. Mm. And then when confronted with it, um, just doubles down. Well, uh, you know. And ultimately is uh, found to be lacking credibility. And I was a little bit surprised, because you know I go and I read these cases all the time, and I was surprised to see in the like in the opening paragraphs, he talks about the just generally credibility of other people. In, and then the judge goes on to say, I'm assuming this is a male judge. I shouldn't do that. She goes on to say, I cannot say the same about the constable. As will be discussed, I found aspects of her testimony about important material issues to lack both credibility and reliability. I turn now to the summary of the material evidence. That's pretty damning. I feel sorry for this officer. I don't. She's a 21-year officer. She should know better. Yep. I don't feel sorry. If you're not willing to learn the charter, then you have no business policing. 
so 16 minutes pass from the completion of the booking after they get this poor soul into the police detachment and deal it with that to when she makes a call to duty council. Wow. So, um, you know, it, it just looks like a flagrant disregard for the immediacy of the 10 B rights. Well, you know, and of course nothing came from it because she, you know, she held off during this time and nothing came from it, but, uh, you know, it's serious and it's a serious thing that we see like, when was Subaru 2009? I think I saw it here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, 40 years of the charter or whatever it is now, uh, you would think the police <laughs> officer would know. You would think, <clears throat> but no. Um, the, you know, there has been a trend. There seem to be trends, I notice, in like judges rendering decisions on issues. For a while, you know, 10A will be really popular and there'll be a lot of applications about 10A and 10A rights will get expanded interpretations. And then the courts will kind of shift and be like, hey, we haven't thought about 10B for a while. We see 10B. And this issue about booking delay has been very trendy. Um, There was even a BC Supreme Court case about it in late 2021, um, where there was 11 minutes of delay implementing the right to counsel, which was because the police were booking in the client and the court was like, no, you, you do it immediately. Booking in can wait. Yep. That's important too. I mean, I can see securing the client. That's one thing, but the booking, the booking, none of that needs to be done beforehand. You gather. In fact, it can be done after the samples in an impaired, in an 08 case. Well, you also gather potentially incriminatory evidence during the booking in process. Like how many times have you had the crown try and deduce the booking in photo as evidence that your client's face was flush or eyes were bloodshot? The flap of cocaine. Um, (laughs) That fell out. Yeah. Uh, You can imagine how the read of that police officer's evidence played out when we get to the 24-2 analysis. I bet there was some evidence excluded. The constable did not understand her constitutional obligations, despite being a police officer for 21 years, and despite serving 11 of those 21 years between the release of Subaru and her arrest of Foreman, she mistakenly believed that she need only inform Mr. Foreman of his right to counsel as soon as it was practicable. She had a similar misconception about her implementational duties. And even by her own misguided standards, she knew she would have some explaining to do about the delay of the arrest. And at the time uh, at which she informed Mr. Foreman of his rights at 928, it is utterly unacceptable that an officer with her level of experience, whom the public can reasonably expect to detain and arrest suspects with some regularity, does not know her obligation to immediately inform a suspect of their rights. It is equally unacceptable that she does not know her obligation to implement the suspect's rights at the first reasonable available opportunity. Her dishonest evidence during the inquiry about the charter infringing conduct, therefore, constitutes an aggravating factor. Mm-hmm. So, bad. Bad, bad, bad. Don't lie. If you F up, like, look, this is the one thing I teach police when I go train police. I tell them the easiest way to make my day a lot harder is to admit your mistakes because it takes the ammunition away from me 
when you make a mistake and I can catch you trying to cover up or justify or weasel around it or avoid it, I look like I nailed you. When you make a mistake and you just honestly say, yep, I messed that one up. Now I got nothing. What do I say? Well, your honor, he was very honest. Forthcoming with his mistake. (laughs) Well, I mean, sometimes you're testifying and, and you, you know, you forget something and later on in your testimony, you're like, oh, you know what? That worked with. And the worst thing is you want to correct the evidence. But you're worried that correcting the evidence is just going to lead you to being found not credible when you generally have a good understanding of it. And it's really unfortunate because it, it really discourages you from it discourages you from from giving the full truth. Know what I'm saying? That must be what is going on in the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. Yeah, well, I, you know, as I watch that, I can sort of see that. I can sort of see that. That trial is a mess. Oh anyway, God. you know, it's been a while since we had a meat and potatoes uh, impaired case as well, where there's an accident. And this was actually a pretty good analysis of the accident in the end, uh, because, of course, as you can imagine, the breath samples, although quite high, I think it was uh, around 260 milligrams of alcohol and 100 milliliters of blood. Um but this was a good cross-examination that got to it. And you've got to really give some uh, some Malcolm McRae uh, shout out to Malcolm for that. Um, because he got out all of those things on the 10B that were so important. But ultimately, in the end, um, you got a person with a collision. And this is a... Uh, and, and we've been worried about the direction of things because we've seen recently people in a collision. And this is a guy... In, in a collision with alcohol containers all around him in the car. But ultimately in the end, the judge says the collision itself suggests a reasonable explanation for his physical presentation in its aftermath, despite the Mm -hmm. fact that it's a strange collision into the side of a building. Um, Building probably jumped out in front of him. That could be. (laughs) Um, There's no alcohol smelled on his breath until they get back to the breath room. Um, and uh, the court says, as it stands, the presence of such a large volume of beer cans and the corresponding odor of beer alcohol in the car does not lead inexorably to the inference that Mr. Foreman had recently been consuming alcohol, basically because the guy lived in his car and he looked just like a a binner or something like that. Mm -hmm. The unexplained collision with the building, the confusion, the lack of coordination, the lack of coherence, the glossy and bloodshot eyes and the presence of empty beer cans in the car suggest a likelihood that Mr. Foreman's ability to operate a motor vehicle was impaired by the recent consumption of alcohol. A proper conviction rests upon more, though. So ultimately, he was found, uh, he found a doubt as to whether or not he was impaired in his ability to operate a motor vehicle. A proper conviction or, or she. upon more. I like that line. Yeah, um, that's good because it's... Uh, seems to be the opposite of what we've been seeing. So maybe that's uh, correcting this, uh, this direction that we've seen recently. So what's next, Kyla? Well, it's your favorite time of the week. And that is? The Ridiculous Driver of the Week. Ridiculous driver of the week. 
it's going away. <laughs> Sorry. Awesome. Yes. And this is one that makes me laugh because physics doesn't appear to apply to drunk drivers. I'm sorry, listeners. I'm Maybe sick. we can take that out. Maybe. Maybe everyone should listen to it as a reminder to get your vaccines and your boosters and your wear your masks. Yeah. Um, so this was a Florida man. Classic yeah. ridiculous driver of the week material who's yeah. arrested for DUI, shockingly, because he literally drove his car vertically up a telephone pole. There's a, a photo of it. You can Google this. Google <coughs> Florida man drives car up pole. It's a Mustang, I think. Yeah. And it's basically vertical up against the pole. You can be driven after that. All the how, were off the ground somehow. How, how did it get there? How? That is what I do not understand. The wheels would not make contact with the pole. That did hit the pole at an angle. So it must have been like flying through the air and landed on the pole.
Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, happy birthday, happy birthday to you.